Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Because we're family, we get to celebrate some special moments, and today we get to do that as well. And we've been praying and we've been singing a lot about love, and we're going to talk about love today as well in our message. But we want to put love on display right now, and so Jimmy and Dapur are with us. And as you know, Jimmy and Dapur have been—they have a new status. They have a new status because God says when you get married in Genesis 2.24, the two shall leave their families and the two shall become one. Amen? So let's call them up so we can pray for them and, and celebrate what God has done and, and making them one. So I'll give some more context. Come on, come on up guys. So marriage is an important thing. Marriage is a beautiful thing because God designed marriage. This is not man's idea for loneliness. This is not man's idea for just, you know, I need someone to help me get through life. This is God's design. And so in His kindness, He's decided that these two people will become one. So when you look at them now, this is, not, this is a package deal. And according to God's Word, this is a package deal forever. Amen? Amen. Okay, so we want to pray for them and ask the Lord to bless their marriage. And we want to celebrate that as a family because it's a good thing. Even in this world we live in today, we need godly marriages. We need examples of men and women who fear the Lord and want to love Him and honor Him through marriage. So let us pray for them and commit them to the Lord and ask the Lord to do that. Father God, we thank You so much for just the fact that we can celebrate love. That we can celebrate love in these ways by seeing sinners being brought together, being made one in Jesus. Thank you for your wonderful design that marriage is not just something to satisfy our own desires. But marriage is two people becoming one so they can serve you better. They can put the gospel on display through the way they love one another, sacrificially. And so Father, even as we look to Your Word, we know Your Word is so full of instruction, such beautiful instruction of what it looks like to have a godly marriage. And so I pray for Jimmy and the poor, Lord, that they would do exactly that. That they would follow Your blueprint. They would not listen to the world. That they would not listen only to the opinions of their culture. But they would submit to Your design and Your Word. Thank you that we can see them and loving you. It's because of their love for you that they take marriage so seriously. Thank you for blessing them and the, and the way you even prepare them for marriage. Thank you for saving them. So thank you for making them fear you in the right way. 
And so we ask that you would continue to bless this marriage, Lord. As Jimmy seeks to lead, Lord, let him lead with conviction. Lead him, let him lead with love and responsibility, sacrificially, laying down his life for the poor. And Lord, that she would humbly respond to that leadership by submitting to him as she submits unto you. That the gospel would be truly on display through their marriage. So far, thank you that we can celebrate this as a family. This is a big moment for us as a family to say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for bringing them together. And so let us come alongside them as a church, Lord, and love them well so they can love others well through this marriage and love one another and honor you. And so we pray all these things knowing, Lord, that yes, we are sinners and we need help. And thank you so much for the community of faith and the community of grace we have here, even in this church, to support one another in this. And we pray this now for your glory. Amen. Thank you so much, guys. We love you. And church, let's love them well as they seek to honor the Lord. Well, we've been talking a lot about hope over the last month. And today is our final message in this short series from First Peter. We've been talking a lot about biblical hope specifically. And we have to recognize that in a sense, the whole world is facing similar challenges at this very time. In these uncertain times. And it's because everyone is faced with the same fears and challenges, we have to ask ourselves, What makes the church community of faith any different? In other words, how are Christians responding differently from everyone around us in these uncertain times? Because the opportunity we have as a church right now is to live in such a way, as we've been seeing this last month, to have a living hope. Knowing that our future is certain, and that we have this guaranteed heavenly secure inheritance, which is guarded by God through faith. To live in a way that shows we have a joyful hope. Knowing that even in the midst of trials and suffering, we know God is revealing our faith. Purifying our faith. Putting it to the test. Allowing us to rejoice in hope. Because God is at work in our lives. And to live in a way that shows we have a holy hope. Knowing that God has called us to think and act differently from the world around us. To be able to live holy lives that is going to bring glory to Him. To be different from the world around us. And doing so how? By focusing in on the grace that He will give us. Reminding us that everything we do for Him is all grace. We have nothing to boast in in of ourselves, but we only boast in the grace of God. Because it's all grace from start to finish. And recognizing how holy God is causes me to live with the right kind of fear we saw. And not to live as if this grace is cheap. That somehow I deserve it. But rather recognizing how costly it is 
by living with respect and honor toward God. Because He is our Father. And because what He's done through His Son. But what we will see today is that because of how amazing salvation is in Christ, the church has a loving hope as well. So not only a living hope, a joyful hope and a holy hope, we have a loving hope as well. Where the truth of the gospel changes the way we love one another and those around us. And as we remember that Peter here, he's talking to a bunch of suffering Christians who are living as strangers and aliens and like us who are on their way home to be with Jesus. And for Peter, salvation is something toward which we are moving. This future, final salvation, it's not just something we sit around and wait for. Which means we are to respond. We are to respond to this glorious salvation we have. And that glorious salvation that is coming. And while we are moving toward that future salvation, Peter is wanting to exhort his readers that in the meantime, you need to be loving one another like Jesus loves you. You need to be loving one another like Jesus loves you. Because that is what the gospel does. The hope of the gospel changes the way we relate to one another. Even in times of suffering. In fact, Peter is reminding us that because of what Christ has done, we ought to look outside ourselves and practically love one another in a way that shows that we are hoping in God together. In verses 18 to 21 of chapter 1, after the section we covered last Sunday, after talking about how we are to relate to God and thinking more about holy living, he wants believers to remember that they have been rescued. Or ransom from their former way of living. Verse 18. And this ransom price for their lives has been paid by a permanent payment. The precious blood of Jesus. The most secure permanent payment there ever will be for your sin. You could say it was an irreversible transaction that has been made. So that believers are made free. Free to go and live for Christ as they hope in Him. Made free from the enslavement and the bondage to sin. The very truth that gives us real hope for our personal holiness. Because now that you have been set free to live obedient, holy lives, you have the capacity to be holy. And it's our holy God and our holy Father that made this payment. And how did He do it? Well, through the death of His holy Son. And Peter goes on and tells that these believers that God has always known that even before Adam and Eve sinned for the very first time in the garden, rejecting God's word and His love, that He would pay the price for their sins. In verse 20. For those who obey the call of the gospel, reminding these suffering believers that their hope and faith indeed are very real. Why? Because again, it's linked to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead by the Father. He was taken up into heaven. Verse 21. The very place we long to be. And all that amazing truth of the gospel, it changes us. We can't be living the same way we did before. Because the good news of Jesus means that you have been transformed and you have been taken from this realm of hopelessness to the realm of the hopeful. 
From the realm of joyousness to the realm of the joyful. And from the realm of the disobedient to the realm of obedience. And so today we will see that true salvation allows us to go from the, the realm of lovelessness to the realm of the loving. Because if we are truly hoping in God, in this glorious salvation, it will give us the ability to really love other people. Jesus is the gospel. He is our inheritance. He is our first love. And because of what He's done, we should rightly respond to this amazing gospel message that we say we believe. And last week, specifically, we saw that the first practical response was to be holy in verse 13. We are commanded uh, to fix our hope on the grace of God and to be holy like God is holy. And the next right response to this gospel is the command in our text today, which is to love one another with real love. And so we will look at two questions today. Two questions that's going to help us understand how hope and love work together. And the first question is, how can I love like Jesus loves? In other words, how is it even possible for me to love others in the first place? And secondly, how should I love like Jesus loves? What does that practically look like? And so let's dive into this text together as you open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. 1 Peter 1, verses 22 to 25. Peter goes on and he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all is glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. And so firstly, our first question, how can I love like Jesus loves? Because what we will see here is that the ability to love others like Jesus loves comes from the way we hope in God. So hope and love is connected. And in this text, Peter gives us two reasons why it's possible to love other people with a Christ-like love. And the first reason is found in verse 22. In the first half of the verse, which says, Having, or since you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And then the second reason is actually found in verse 23, where he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And right in the middle, we find the command. In the middle of these two reasons, sandwich in the middle is the command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so these two kinds of reasons go together. Because they both have to do with the result of this glorious salvation. That Peter has been talking about all throughout this first chapter. And the first reason in verse 22 we see is one of the results of salvation. Which is that when you heard the truth of the gospel... You responded in obedience to it. In other words, you turned from your old way of living, repented of your sins, and you turned to Christ by faith, believing the promises of complete and total forgiveness that are in Him. And at that moment, your soul is purified because of your obedient response to the call of the gospel. 
And this response gives you a new nature. And now it gives you the capacity or the enablement to do something that you were not able to do before. And that is to love others like the way God wants us to love others. And you should not be assuming that you've been doing this before you were a Christian. Because yes, even unbelievers love things and they love people in a certain worldly way, emotional way, but the Bible makes it very clear that before salvation, man does not have the ability to love the way God wants us to love. To love in light of gospel truth, we believe. In John 5 verse 42, Jesus Himself said to the Jews, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. And the reason why Jesus could say this is because He knows that supernatural love is a God-given love. Supernatural love is a God-given love. And these people who were seeking to get rid of Jesus, they definitely had the love for themselves. And therefore they won't be able to obey this kind of command to love. Because first, you need the capacity. You need the ability. The enablement to be able to love like this. You need a new, purified heart. So Peter is talking in the, the perfect tense here in verses 22. Having purified your souls. Which means that now that you have purified your soul, you can do this. You can love like Jesus loves. Because what happened in the past now has ongoing results in the present. And so when Peter talks about having purified your souls, he's referring to the purification that happened when you first believed the gospel. When you received this gift of salvation that we saw back in verse 3, this being born again to a living hope. Because that is what Peter also says in verse 23, doesn't he? Since you have been born again. The result of the new birth is that you are purified and made clean and you, you are now able to obey. Because he says, being purified by your obedience to the truth. And what is the truth? The truth being the gospel message about Jesus. And obedience is actually a bit of a rich word in this context because it's not saying that faith is not involved in all of this. Because where's faith in all these verses? In this process of purification and salvation, where is faith and how does that fit in? Because in this context, obedience is the, the fuller expression of real saving faith. Because true saving faith shows itself in obedience. In other words, you don't become a Christian without God cleansing your heart first. I mean, Titus, he makes this very clear. Titus 3, 4-7. Let me just read it to you again. Well, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out in, on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And you look at what Paul says in Romans, in Romans chapter 1 verse 5, and he's talking about Jesus here and says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations. And obedience of faith, that's another way of talking about salvation. 
And in Romans 5, verse 5, he says that because of true salvation, the love of God has been poured into your heart. And again, if you read this passage in 1 Peter 1, verse 22, carefully, you notice that it says, Your obedience. Or another translation says, You have done this. And it kind of sounds like these people are having to do it themselves, right? But we know that's not the case. Why? Because salvation, we know, is a gift. Peter makes that clear along with the rest of the New Testament authors, which is also tied to the second reason why true salvation gives us the capacity to love like Jesus loves. Because he says in verse 23, it is because of the new birth, being born again, and specifically the role of God's Word. Do you see it? You can love like Jesus loves because of God's Word. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. And Peter loves talking about what is perishable and imperishable. Just think about this first chapter. He says, Our inheritance is not perishable, verse 4. Our faith is not perishable, verse 7. And verses 18 to 19, Our ransom, the precious blood of Christ, is not perishable. And now again in verse 23, God's Word is not perishable. And the overall point he's trying to make is that because of God's great mercy and gift of true salvation, all of these glorious elements of salvation is certain and will last forever. Our inheritance will last forever. Our faith will last forever. Our ransom, this payment, forever. And now God's Word. All of what we have been given in Christ will last forever. And does that not bring you hope? That is so hopeful. And in this verse, Peter explains specifically that where our new capacity love comes from because he essentially says that the new birth, the new purified heart that is able to love the right way comes from the Word of God. And he says, yes, you are born again, not through the seed that can perish, you know, like a seed thrown on the ground and the sun is going to perish it or a bird is going to come and eat it up. No, your new birth and your capacity to love comes from a seed that cannot be destroyed. More specifically, the living and abiding, abiding Word of God. And the point again that Peter is trying to make is that this seed, this Word of God, this truth of God about salvation has brought you into this new life. A new creation. When God opened your heart to the truth. By the new birth. And if that is true, then you will stay and remain in this new creation forever. Think about it. You are God's child forever. Again, that's hopeful, isn't it? If God saved you, then you're going to be a new creation forever. And Peter really wants to drive this point home. So what does he do? Then he actually quotes from the Old Testament. He's going to say the same thing with Old Testament authority. He quotes from Isaiah 40 verse 6. Where he says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So Peter really wants to make this crystal clear. If the seed from which you were born was perishable, then your future and your fate would surely be like that of the grass and the flowers. It it withers and it falls off. It perishes and it doesn't last. 
It sounds pretty hopeless. But if the Word of God, the good news of Jesus, is living and everlasting, which we know it always has been and always will be, then if believers have been given you birth through this Word, then what? Then the life into which you have been born again is unending. And your love for one another can start now and it's going to last into eternity. And so you can see that Peter really wants to emphasize the Word of God is potent and very powerful. And do you see why? Because it is the good news that brings new life to your hopeless soul. It is the Word that causes you to be born again. Because you cannot be a Christian without hearing the Gospel truth. And this world, this word is going to last forever. And the implications then is this new life in Christ will last forever as well. And as you long for His Word, like Peter goes on to explain in chapter 2, like babies who long for, for milk, as you long for God's life-giving Word and taste it that the Lord is good, then you will grow up to mature in the way you love other people. To love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. The very law that is written on our hearts. And so church, we need to slow down and recognize that we cannot create this seed, this new seed, this new nature. And as one scholar says, so how on earth do we think that we could extinguish it? We understand that it's the Holy Spirit that indwells us when we are born again. And therefore, the rest of our lives and into eternity, it enables us to grow as we wait for Jesus to come back. Growing up in the way we love other people. Like God wants us to love them. Which all gives us so much hope as we come to our next question. Because not only do we have been given this new capacity to love, but by being purified when we trusted Christ for our salvation. But God knows we get distracted. Or self-focused in how we love other people. Even though we have this new nature that by default wants to love, we can easily mess up that love. And we still have to work at it. And I think that's why even it's a command. Peter gives it as a command. Which brings us to question number two. How should I love like Jesus loves? If I've been given this capacity to love differently, then what does this kind of love look like? Well, I think we can sum it up in three words from verse 22. Sincerely, earnestly, and purely. Sincerely, earnestly, and purely. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the command. And if there's one thing that can change the way we hold on till Jesus comes back in these uncertain times, then it is the way we love one another. When everything else around us is so uncertain, we want to be certain of God's love for us. And one way God designs that to happen is the way Christians love each other. Real love for one another will help each other make it to the end. That's how hope and love works together. Because what the world needs right now and what the church needs right now are people who are living as if their hope and their love are truly alive. And in the Bible, 
We see real love for one another is something the Apostle spoke about and valued over and over and over again. Think of what Paul writes to the Colossians. In Colossians 1 verses 3 to 5, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, and what? And of the love that He has for all the saints, that you have for all the saints. And then he gives the reason why in verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So Paul is making the same connection here. Because of their hope in heaven, their hope of the future, they are practically loving each other now. But the reality is and the problem is that if you're not hoping in God, if you feel hopeless, if you live as if all you can do is be consumed with your own problems and feelings and opinions, then you won't be able to notice who you need to love and how you can love the person that is suffering right next to you. Pastor John Piper, he asks a good question when he says, Is it not heavenly mindedness? It is not heavenly mindedness that hinders love. It is worldly mindedness that hinders love. Even when it's disguised by a religious routine on the weekend. Where is the person whose heart is so passionately in love with the promised glory of heaven that he feels like an exile and sojourner on the earth? Where is the person who has so tasted the beauty of the age to come that the diamonds and the world look like baubles and the entertainment of the world is empty? And the moral cause of the world are too small because they have no view of eternity. Where is this person? Well, according to Peter, that person should be you. If you are truly born again, a soul-purified believer, who has a new capacity to love others in the church like Jesus loves, that should be you. And we all know this command to love others is not something new. I mean, we've already talked about it this year already. And so I want to do is, I just want to practically look at these three ways we can love like Jesus loves. How should I love like Jesus loves? Well, the first word Peter used here is sincere brotherly love. Sincere brotherly love. And this word sincere means genuine. Genuine love. Or in the negative, not hypocritical love. This is not a fake love. This is not pretending. It's the same word Paul uses in Romans 12 verse 9 after unpacking 11 chapters of glorious gospel truth. He then goes on to say, The church responds to the truth with genuine love for one another. Holding on to the truth. Being hospitable towards one another. On 2 Corinthians 6, 4-6, Paul says, Of his own life and ministry, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance in afflictions, in hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, Hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and genuine love. Here, Paul's reminding us that even in the context of suffering, genuine love actually flourishes. Because it's genuine love that thinks about God, and then thinks about other people. And not just ourselves. Because the problem with the world is it can be fake in loving you. I think we all can relate to that. It's like what the psalmist says, The word of his mouth was smoother than butter, but the war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, 
Yet they were drawn swords. Psalm 55, 21. When people smile and pretend they, they care about you, but the very next opportunity they see their own interest above anyone else. And as one commentator says, Christian love is not just a warm feeling. It is the determination to place the rights and welfare of others ahead of our own self. But the problem is that even loving yourself and pretending to love others, we know this can happen in the church as well. Because who are we to love in this verse? Peter says we are to purify ourselves for a sincere, real, brotherly love. And brotherly love is uh, this new capacity to love that comes with a new audience to love. Which is those sitting right next to you in this church. He's talking about other believers. And so when you come to church, you might even have experienced this kind of pretend love, you know, that, that feels shallow. It feels empty. It doesn't feel real. Where you're polite and you smile to one another, but it doesn't really go beyond that. Well, Peter's making it clear that because of salvation, you don't have to keep loving that way. You should love other brothers and sisters in Christ with a real, deep, genuine, brotherly kind of love. And brotherly is the familial or family kind of love. So we like to talk about family, you know. Church is a family. Philadelphia love in the original language. And so think of the bond that exists between brothers, between family. That's a deep connection. Kind of makes me think of when I was in London. After graduating high school, I went to London for a year as an inexperienced young South African. Fed after high school, seeking to go make my millions in London. And as I got there, I can, what is the first thing I did? I connected with other South Africans. I mean, we don't know each other at all, but these people, they helped me to find a place to stay. They helped me to find all the places I need to look for work. Some of them even shared some of their groceries with me before I could find a job. And all that we know is that we come from the same country. That is what connected us. So how much more should that be true of the brothers and sisters in the church? Who have been united by the precious blood-bought life of Jesus. Who have the same inheritance. Who have the same grace. And so yes, we need to know each other on a deeper level. And that's going to take time. But as we do that, we have the opportunity to love like we've never loved before. And we recognize that this new environment of love is because of our oneness in Christ. And this oneness and unity we have is not just a nice slogan that we explain on Sunday mornings. This oneness is, actually goes far beyond any earthly relationship because this kind of love Peter is referring to is going to go all the way into eternity. Do you ever think about it that way? And it goes beyond any limitations or barriers that we might have right now. Because you might walk into this church and you see all these people from different backgrounds and different cultures and you're like, wow, Peter, it's going to be hard to love others who are so different from me. Yes, we need to recognize that it might be hard, but it's definitely not impossible. You have been given a new capacity to love with genuine love. 
loving other people with a different culture, different background, different skin color, different language. And in the bigger picture of the soul, we are to love other Christians now because we are going to be loving each other forever. And that is why Jesus said, this is how you will know if you are truly followers of Jesus. How? Well, by the, by the way you love one another. Because of our new nature and our new capacity and because of our hope in this future return of Jesus together. This is the community, the church, the very people, the very family that God has given you to exercise this new kind of love. And so practically, what does genuine love do? Well, genuine love genuinely cares. The Bible says in John 15, 12, where Jesus said to His disciples, This commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I love you. Love one another just as I love you. And you, wow, I mean, it sounds a little bit like last week. Be holy as I am holy. Which is a pretty high standard, is it not? And how did Jesus love us? We've been talking about it all morning. He loved us by showing us mercy and compassion and grace when we are broken and alienated. He drew closer to us knowing how difficult and messy and complicated we are. He loves us by always being there for us when, when no one else is there for us. He loves us by understanding our very needs and He shows up to meet that very need, even sacrificing Himself. First John 3.17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. Do we have our eyes open to the needs of our fellow brothers and sisters around us? Or do we fall into the trap of being so consumed with our own problems and our own needs that we can't see what's going on around us? Again, I like how one pastor practically asked the question, when is the last time we reached out to the widow, the real widow in need? When is the last time we helped a single parent struggling to raise their children without a spouse? When is the last time we ever thought about taking into our home someone with no place to stay, a foster child, an orphan? When is the last time we actually looked to spend time with someone else who's stuck in sin? When is the last time you gave away your preferred plans for the weekend to spend time with someone who's lonely? He says, I'm talking about love that reaches down to where life is really lived. Not in the trivia of decorating your already happy life with a nice feeling. Because if we're going to love like this, we're going to have to stretch ourselves. Which is kind of the next way Peter says we ought to love. First, the command is to love with a sincere brotherly love. We know who to love. Not a fake pretend kind of love. But now he says, love earnestly. Earnestly. And this word earnestly, or fervently, in other translations, has the verb meaning of straining and stretching yourself. It implies that there's going to be real effort and commitment in this kind of love. In fact, it's the same word used when the church prayed for Peter in Acts 12 verse 5. 
Peter was in prison and he was about to be executed perhaps and the church earnestly and fervently prayed for him. So think about it. What would it look like to stretch myself for the good of someone else? Maybe it's as simple as like a husband who likes to do something on the weekend and the wife doesn't like to do that but she stretches herself and she does it because she loves her husband. And she knows he will enjoy it. Or to even go to someone's house to go fix something. And what supposed to take 20 minutes ends up taking the whole day. And your time is precious and limited already. What even if you use a little bit of food you have already. And you reach out to the one who does nothing. Making space for one more at the table. Stretching. That meal. Because we can all acknowledge that it's easier to love other people in this kind of way when they at least show appreciation. They show gratitude for that kind of love. But what if they don't? Does that mean I stop trying? Should I rather just complain about it? Maybe you've invited someone over for a meal and to try and get to know them, but it's hard and it feels like you're just not connecting, really. Do you just give up? Or do you say, well, I'll try again, but only if I see them make an effort first. Because have any of us really stretched ourselves to the point where we actually can't go any further? Just think of Jesus. Think of his earnest, his fervent prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where his love stretches him to the point where he's sweating blood. Where his love stretches him to an obedience to the point of death. And then you ask yourself again, have I stretched myself in loving other people like Jesus loves me? And that brings us to a sobering perspective, doesn't it? And you might be, well, it's really hard to love someone else if they just expect it. It seems to me that they ask me to do things for them without them thinking about me and how that would affect my family and my time. What if they even sin against me? It's not just once, they do it frequently. Well, Peter knows. Peter knows. He knows this is a reality among believers. And therefore, after talking so much about Christ and how Christ suffered for, for us in the rest of the letter, changing people's perspective on suffering, he says in chapter 4, verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. It's the same word again. Earnestly, fervently, stretching yourself. And then he gives a reason why. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Because that is what happens with genuine, earnest relationships. Where people might have different ways of doing things or different expectations when it comes to showing love to one another. But even if people do things that frustrate us or make it hard for us, we have to earnestly love one another because real love helps us overlook the faults of others. And we know that Paul wrote about this extensively in 1 Corinthians 1.13, right? The great wedding text. Love is patient and kind, verse 4. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. 
is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Does that mean that I always just turn a blind eye to a brother and sister in the church who is sinning? Or specifically, someone sins against me? Because we know the Bible says, in fact, that that is not the loving thing to do. Because genuine, earnest, real love is not pretending that sin is not real. And the classic verse on this, of course, is Ephesians 4.15, right? Where the mature in the church does speak truth in love to one another. So that the body, the church, can function the way it should. And as you evaluate your preferences and you put them aside... You see, but according to the Scriptures, this sin has to be addressed. With the goal of helping each other see the hope we have in God. The hope that we can change. To see them living their lives honoring God and loving other people. Not being blinded by their own sin. Because the final word Peter uses here is purely. We need to love each other purely. We are to love each other from a pure heart. Because... You have this new capacity to love like Jesus loves, loving each other genuinely, sincerely, brotherly, loving each other earnestly, stretching yourself, making the effort, and now love each other purely, from the heart. Not externally pretending, but from deep down inside, the very core of your being. And essentially what Peter is saying here is, you will not be able to love if you have unconfessed sin in your heart. This pure kind of love flows from a clean heart because what goes in on the heart really reveals what you love, doesn't it? Think of a love for an idol. An idol that keeps you from loving God and loving other people the way you should. If a spouse has a secret love for perverted things on the internet, this love for pleasure, it's going to hinder the way you love family. Living in this fantasy world when the real thing is right in front of you. If you have a love for money, this greed, this, this hunger for money, is going to stop you from seeing the needs around you and be able to give towards those needs. If you have a love for attention, then you will struggle to see the attention other people might need as well. And so you read the scriptures, you, you see examples of this. And I think of Moses here. Moses, he's this amazing example of this guy who... who he has his hope and his love that flows from a pure heart because Hebrews 11, 24-26 tells us this. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because for he was looking for the reward. You read that and it's pretty clear that what allowed Moses to give up all the benefits of being Pharaoh's daughter? Son of Pharaoh's, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Enjoying this prestigious life of luxury. What makes him choose being mistreated with God's people instead? It's his hope in the future. 
He was looking toward the future reward, which revealed that what was going on in his heart. And from that heart, it freed him up to really love and identify with God's people. Suffering along with them. Love them in a genuine, stretchy, pure kind of way. Because of his hope in God. And that is where true love comes from. From a heart that has been released from the pleasures of this world. A heart that is pure. And Peter, you know, this guy, he's always in the thick of things. He's always featuring somewhere with this kind of stuff. In John 13, verses 6 to 10, we have this scene where, between Peter and Jesus. In verse 6, it says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing, do not, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Well, Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but my head as well. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to be washed, except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you is clean. For he knew who was to betray him, that what was said, not all of you are clean. And the point is that if you are a true believer, Jesus has made you completely clean and pure. When you believe in Him for salvation. But sometimes as we go through this life, we get those feet dirty again, don't we? Dirty with the sins and pleasures of this world. And so we need to wash our feet again through the cleansing power of God's sanctifying Word. Our eternal salvation is linked to the eternal power of God's Word. And if we have received the capacity to love like Jesus loved from God's Word, does it not make sense that we should return to it daily? And be continually purified and cleansed by obedience to the truth? To love others with the right gospel perspective? Because if you love God's Word, and you've been changed by it, then you will love other people. This is what a pure, changed heart does. So let me just say it as straight as the Bible does. 1 John 4, 16-21 So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected within us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so ask yourself, do I really love those in the church? 
But we know that it's horrible. We've heard that, and we've seen now, it's, it's going to be hard if you're going to love in this sacrificial, stretching kind of way. We recognize that people can be difficult. It requires that we move beyond just being polite. To be genuinely interested in other people and their needs. It's going to require that we stretch ourselves for suffering for the good of someone else to help meet those needs. It will require that we stay pure. Dealing with the idols in our hearts so that we are able to see the needs around us. And all of this is possible because through faith in Jesus and His promises, we have the hope and the capacity to love like Jesus loves. Isn't that encouraging? Because we clearly see here today that this kind of love is not a suggestion. It's not just something we do when, we, when it's convenient to us. It's a command. Be holy as I am holy. Be loving as I am loving. But it's a hopeful command. It's a hopeful command. So let me just close this series on biblical hope with this question. And again, this is a little bit of John Piper here. Is it true that when Christians set their hearts earnestly and intensely on the future reality of sharing the glory of God and seeing the risen Lord and being freed from sin and sickness and living in joy for all eternity, when Christians set their hearts with deep longing and strong confidence on the realities and the promises, do they not become heavenly minded that they are able to love others like Jesus loves as they wait for Him to return? And the answer that Peter is saying is yes. Yes. As we hope in Jesus, we can love like Jesus. So let us hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you first loved us. Thank you that we can even look in this church and see visible ways of people showing sacrificial love towards one another. And Lord, that is just because you have transformed their hearts. You have given them the capacity to love in this way. A way that's genuine. A way that really seeks to know the needs of the person in front of them. A way that's earnest. A way that seeks to stretch themselves to see how they can actually meet that need. Whether it's physical or spiritual or emotional, whatever it might be. To be able to love in a way that is pure, Lord. As we come to your word and cleanse ourselves through the purifying work of your, your truth in the Bible. We are able to get our eyes off the things of this world that hinder us from loving people the way we should. And set our minds, casting our minds into eternity. To be able to love our brothers and sisters like we will for all eternity. Because of the gospel and the capacity you've given us to love like this. Jesus, you change everything. You absolutely change everything. And it's my prayer that as a church we would put that love on display to this world. To show them the hope we have in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.